you need to understand David as what's called an archetype. That means that he is a, a figure from the Old Testament who points forward to the ultimate figure that the world is waiting for, this king that is Jesus Christ. He's the greatest Old Testament king, King David, and Jesus is the greatest New Testament king. He's the greatest, he is the ultimate king that all human beings long for. Now, as we've been going through this series, we've, we've seen David in a primarily positive light. He's been, he's been this great figure who, who shows courage, like we're going to look at again this morning. He shows fortitude. He shows gutsiness. He shows compassion. Uh, he shows grace and kindness, especially last week. You saw in the story of Mephibosheth, if you were here, just King David at the, at the height of his power. He's, he's so kind and gracious to this, to this nobody, in fact, this member of his enemy's family, Mephibosheth. And so what you see David as is just this awesome guy in every way, shape, or form. But starting next week, things are going to change. After his meteoric rise, David kind of has this epic fall. And we discover that David is not perfect. David is not, uh, he's not Jesus, obviously. He is far from perfect. He is flawed and he is sinful, just like you and me. And we're going to see how those flaws and his sin actually reaps a pretty bitter harvest in his life. And, and what that's going to show us, actually, is that we should never, ever, ever put our faith in human earthly leaders because they are all like you and me. As my dad likes to say, we're all fallen, we're all failing. David was like that, you're like that, I'm like that. And so we should not expect our leaders to be any different from that. We should not be shocked or surprised when we find out that they're corrupt or that they're selfish. Or that they're only concerned about serving their cronies and their con rather than their constituents. We all fail because we're all flawed. Now, we're going to learn more about that later. And we're going to see how what we need is this divine leader, this divine king. But first, what I want to do is I want to look one more time at the David and Goliath story. I know we looked at it back in June with Keith. Um, but I want to look at it again. Um, he's Israel's greatest king. God describes him as a man after his own heart. He's different from Saul. He's different from all the kings that are going to come after him. And I want us to look at what it is that made David different. Even as we explore his failures and his flaws in the next coming weeks, there's still something about David that is different from all the kings that are going to come after him, many of them his own uh, offspring and his own descendants. What made David different? What made this kid, at the age of 15 years old, walk out in the middle of that field and take on the greatest military soldier that that world knew at the time? This monster called Goliath. 15 years old. Well... We're going to do a bit of a psycho-spiritual study on King David to find out what made him tick. Now, this 
This isn't the main story of the message of Goliath, okay? This is not a be like David and you can conquer all your fears message, although it's a little bit like that. And that's not the main story of this, or the main message of this story. As we saw when Keith showed us, uh, the main message of this story is actually Jesus is the one who conquers on our behalf. That's what David points to as the one who conquers on behalf of the people of Israel. But I do think, I do think it is worth looking at the character of David. So that's what we're going to do for a few minutes this morning. Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see what makes David tick. And we're going to see two things, hopefully. We're going to see that identity shapes perspective and that identity shapes attitude. Identity t- shapes perspective and identity shapes attitude. So let's start with the first one. David shows up at this battle. So you've got the Philistine army on one side of a valley. You've got the Israelite army on the other side of the valley. And David shows up, and he shows up not as a sh- soldier. He shows up as a shepherd and as a son. And he's there bringing basically a care package to his brothers who are in the Israelite army. And as a curious teenager, he, of course, starts asking, what's going on here? What's going on here? And um, in verse 25, uh, we read this. The Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Now, That's what the Israelites say is happening. There's this guy, he's coming up out against our army, and he's defying the armies of Israel, and he's defying the king of Israel, and and, and he's going to give a great reward to whoever takes this guy out for us. And listen in verse 26, listen to David's response. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this great disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Here's what we learn from that last question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? In that question, this is what we see. We see that David pictures this scene, his perspective on what's happening in front of him is completely different from the perspective of Saul and the soldiers. They say that he's defied Israel and the armies of Israel. To them, this is a uh, one man stepping out and, and taking on another man. This is, this is one tough soldier calling out an army of another bunch of tough soldiers. They have a completely horizontal picture of the thing that's going on in front of them. This is just an issue between men, you know, macho, sort of grandstanding against each other. Oh, I have the bigger muscles, that kind of thing. And it's about war between those armies. They have no vertical component to their perspective. They have no spiritual component to their perspective. David is different. David says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defies not just the army, but the army of the living God? He has a completely different view. He has this vertical perspective on everything he sees around him. It comes, you see, from his identity. 
He says that Goliath is an uncircumcised Philistine. Why does he say that? Is that just some slur? Right? Is that like, a, like is that just some kind of slam against another guy? You know, when a bunch of men or, or, or young men are sitting around and they're, they're calling each other names and stuff like that? No, no, no. This is, this is very, very particular. What he's saying is he's saying that Goliath is outside the covenant. God made a special covenant, a special relationship with the people of Israel, that they would be his special possession, that he would take care of them. And when he says that, that Goliath is an uncircumcised Philistine, he's saying he's not part of God's people. He's outside of that covenant relationship. And when he says that, that he's defying the armies of the living God, he's remembering the identity of the army itself. This isn't just any old army that walks the planet. This is the army of God. The point here is identity shapes perspective. What you think your identity is shapes how you will face your life. David knew who he was. What's, what's identity? It's a tough question, I gotta admit. I, when I was writing this sermon, I thought, man, I have to do like two sermons on identity before I do this sermon. And I thought, no, that's never gonna work. So I'm gonna have to try to be really, really quick about this. We talk about identity a lot in today's culture. Identity is everything. What is it? Historically, identity was understood by philosophers and thinkers, etc., as the thing, the stable center of who you are that is unchanging. So it's that foundational part of who you are. That is your identity. Your circumstances change, but your identity doesn't change. So it would typically things be, be things like, well, your sex, your the family that you're a part of, the clan that you're a part of, your, your ethnicity, your relationships to, to the village in which you found yourself, these kinds of things. But today we think of, of identity as particularly as, as your self-understanding. Now what's interesting is, is in the past people thought of their identity as self-understanding as well, but the place that they looked for their identity was in those things that I mentioned outside of themselves. Well, I am child of Angela Scaringa. I am sister to Joel and Louis Scaringa, who are all embarrassed now. Don't look at them. That's who I am. Today, we're told to look inside ourselves and create our identity and decide for ourselves who we are. But David is actually doing both. He's looking inside himself and he's saying, who am I? And what he's doing is, is he's remembering that he is a child of God, fundamentally at his core. He knew he was a child of God. At bottom, that was the foundation of his life. And so his perspective on the situation around him is completely different from the perspective of the armies and the perspective of Saul. We'll, we'll see how that plays out in a moment. So identity shapes perspective. And I, I can't go more into that now. Maybe on a podcast in a little while, I'll go more into it. But identity shapes your perspective. And because it shapes your perspective, it also shapes your attitude. Because it shapes your perspective, it also shapes your attitude. What David shows in this passage is this incredible humility, but also confidence. He has this, this beautiful combination of 
Humility and confidence holding together. So Saul hears that there's this guy walking around saying, who's this Philistine? Who does he think he is? Why are we backing down? All this kind of stuff. And he says, hey, call that guy over here. Maybe he's willing to fight. So they find David, this little guy, bring him into Saul. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's probably not a great idea for Saul to find a champion of his own to go up against Goliath, given Goliath's reputation. But of course, Saul is rather desperate. And so he says, come on over. And he sees David and he takes one look at him and he goes this ain't gonna work you're not gonna be do that you're not gonna be able to take this guy on you're going to get ripped apart see again how his identity Saul who no longer has an identity rooted in his relationship with God not even an identity as king of a people for crying out loud he's a leader of a nation and he's sitting there shaking in his boots he doesn't see how victory could be possible at all. And he says, this isn't going to work, David. You're, you're not going to be able to pull this off. And David says, you know, I'm not a soldier, but I am a shepherd. And let me tell you, you know, when a lion came and it stole one of the sheep out of my sheepfold, I didn't just like chalk it up at the cost of doing business. You know, if you think about it, you get a whole big sheepfold, you lose one sheep, one little lamb, because they always go for the weakest, right? So this is probably a little lamb, doesn't have great genes, a little slow keeping up with the herd or something like that, who knows, gets picked off. Hey, it happens. David doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going after that sucker. And he leaves his sheep and he goes after the lion and kills it dead. How? We don't know. And then he says, same thing with a bear. A bear tried to do that, and I did not allow it. I went after it. Look at the incredible courage he had. He killed a bear, and he killed a lion in order to protect his one little sheep that got taken off. Hey, wait a minute. Those of you who read the Bible regularly, you hear any echoes in that? Matthew 18. Jesus will leave the 99 to go after the one must be awfully dedicated to go after that one sheep. Leave the 99 unprotected and unguarded to go after that one sheep. That's the kind of guy David is. But listen, he's confident, but he's not overconfident. <laughs> he's also very, very humble because he said, the Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and the Lord will rescue me from this Philistine. In other words, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I can't do this on my own. It was God who enabled this to happen. It was God who protected me and empowered me to protect the sheep the way I was supposed to as a shepherd. All glory goes to God. He's the one who did this, ultimately. You see the, the combination of, of, of humility and confidence in David? There's no confusion about who he is. He has clarity because of his identity. And, and here, here's what he was clear about. And this is a, something for worth thinking about a little bit, guys. The enemy of God's people is the enemy of God. I'll say it again for all you people who are throwing this on Twitter. The enemy of God's people 
is the enemy of God. Think about this. Just think about this. If you are a Christian, meaning you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who has lived for you, has died for you, has risen for you. If you trust in him, when someone messes with you, they are messing with God. Your enemy is God's enemy. If you pick a fight, if someone picks a fight with you, they are picking a fight with God Almighty. Because you see, when you're a Christian, you enter into this familial relationship with God. You become his son or you become his daughter. And not, not just sort of in the sense that God made you. Everybody is God's son or daughter in the sense that every human being ever born on this earth is a creation of Almighty God. You are not the product of time plus chance plus matter. You are the product of the God of the universe. He is behind your existence. And so in that sense, he's your father. But there's another way to be, have God as your father, and that is in a relationship as one who knows him as your father. You are his child. You are his son. You are his daughter. And because you are his son, you are his daughter, that means that, that if, if people pick a fight with you, if people are after you, if people are trying to destroy you, if people are trying to take you down, that means that they are picking a fight against Almighty God. You know, my, my son, uh, my oldest son is on a soccer team, uh, of, you know, a rec soccer team, and they had, a, they had a short shortage of players one week, and my youngest son is quite a good soccer player for his age, and so he said, hey, you want to come play as a sub on my team? And you know, my youngest said, sure, yeah, I'll do that. So he goes out and he, he plays. And, and because he's a smaller guy, partly because of his age, uh, the other team could uh, thought that they could kind of target him. But unfortunately, because he's good, it's very frustrating when someone smaller than you is better than you. Very, very frustrating. I've lived that many times. Anyway, so a pretty big guy started going after him and trying to tackle him and playing rough with him and beating up on him. And his older brother is a fair bit bigger than him. And he stepped in and he said, you mess with my brother, you're messing with me. And the problem stopped. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Well, on a grand scale, on a big scale, on a cosmic ultimate scale, the relationship between God and us is very much the same thing. That's how David could know. As a 15-year-old teenager, remember he walks into Saul's tent and says, Saul says, here, put on my armor. And Saul and David's putting this stuff on. He's like, I can't, I can't handle this thing. It's way too heavy for me. Obviously, he was not some beefy, brawny guy. But as this young teenager, he knew that if you hope in the Lord... Ultimately, you have nothing to fear, even if on a human level, you have every good reason to be afraid. See, the text is not telling us that, that there was no reason to be, be, be afraid. It describes Goliath. I think uh, uh, Keith said uh, in his sermon on this, this story, he said that, that Goliath, the description of Goliath is one of the most detailed descriptions of an individual in all of the Old Testament. And there's a reason for that. It's supposed to magnify the size and power of this dude. He's a mean dude. 
And David had everybody, every reason to be afraid. The, the armies all had a reason to be afraid. And, and yet, and yet, because David had an identity so deeply rooted in his place as a child of God, that's who he was fundamentally. He was not afraid. It shaped his attitude, you see. He's saying essentially the same thing, or it's saying exactly the same thing as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. He says this, God, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And he goes on to say, therefore, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let, let's, get, let's get down to brass tacks, okay? What's your greatest nightmare? Some of you might actually be living your greatest nightmare. What's your greatest fear? Is it, is it loss of love? Is it loss of wealth, loss of home, loss of health? Is it death itself? Is it loss of life? You see, the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus Christ took the greatest nightmare for us. Alienation from God. You see, if there is a God, it means that you were made by him. And it means that you were made for him, to live in harmony with him. And unless Jesus does something about your sin, about your self-centeredness, about your failure to hold on to perspective, about your unwillingness to, to grasp him by faith and, and live out of that in fearlessness, unless he does something for you and the way you have lived your life, you will be lost to the ultimate poverty, to the ultimate loneliness, to the ultimate shame, alienation from your creator. But, but Jesus on the cross, Jesus Christ, when he was cut off and had known poverty and he had known loneliness, he said to himself, all my friends have left me. Before he went to the cross, he was completely abandoned. He knew shame as he was stripped naked and nailed to those pieces of wood and hung up before all the world to see, stripped completely bare. He knew all that. He took the greatest nightmare for us so that we don't have to face it and what that means friends what that means is is if that you if you believe in jesus it means it means you are free maybe you will lose love here or money or even your life but it's still only here. Psalm 30 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. If you're a Christian, you know that that's always true. That's always true. No matter how thing, bad things are for you now. 
And how dare I say this when we we have a family sitting among us who have seen not once but twice that they have had to flee their homeland because of war and leave everything behind in a matter of hours. And I stand before them and I just stand before you and I have the audacity, I have the guts, I have the nerve to say to you that no matter what is happening to you, joy is still on the way. Even if you die. I have the audacity to say it because the Bible says that the enemy of God's people is the enemy of God and the greatest Goliath, death and Satan, have both been defeated finally and fully and completely. And if the Bible is true, then that means nothing, absolutely nothing can ultimately touch you, can ultimately harm you, can ultimately defeat you. Lost job, lost love, lost betrayed, like being betrayed, having failures in your life, sickness, having to flee, poverty, injustice. We have a conquering hero. That's the message of hope in the scriptures. You have a conquering hero. It was because he had a conquering hero. The Lord will prevail. The Lord will rescue me. That's what David said. He wasn't the conquering hero. His Savior was his conquering hero. And that is the same thing that you have in Jesus Christ. A conquering hero. And maybe you say to yourself, well, I'm not David. David was a man after God's own heart. He was so close to God. How can I be like David? Guys, we had a 15-year-old kid. And he lived before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people. When this sinks into you, you can have a heart, a greater heart than even David had, and you say, I can't believe that's possible. But if it is. If we would allow God to change our perspective. He'll change our attitude. He'll change our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray for this church and every person in it. that you would remind us of our identity. Some of us don't care because we are so caught up in the things of this world that we don't realize that our identity in you is more valuable than anything else that we could ever possess or enjoy. For those people, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in their lives, even if it's a hard work, to open their eyes to see. Many of us, Father, are weighed down by fear and have nightmares that plague us because we're forgetting our identity in you or we're not believing that you are for us. Forgive that unbelief Father, and remind us again and again and again and again that if you are for us, 
no one can be against us. And may we live joyfully and courageously, courageously. The lives that that we have, the assignments that you've given us, may we live them joyfully and courageously so that other people in the world would say, what's with those people? That we might shine the light of Jesus into their lives too. In your son's name we pray.